Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. I'm going to start a series on the book of Romans. And uh, some of you are like, oh my goodness. I heard of a pastor in Winnipeg, I just heard this a couple days ago, who took eight years to preach the book of Romans, okay? <laughs> I'm promising you right now, I am not going to do that, okay? We're going to go through it till like January. I'm thinking like three months. I'm not going to stop on every single verse. We're going to do some big, broad sweeps, but it's a really good book. I mean, it's in the Bible. Uh, we don't need to be intimidated by it. I've had lots of people say, I know there's lots of giggling out there right now and stuff like, Oh, Romans, like, are you? And no, I'm not intimidated by it. It's just another book in the Bible. And it's got lots of awesome stuff in it. And so we're going to work our way through it over the next few months, all right? And of course, there's lots of breaks, as in any self-message series. Uh, church renewal's coming up. Alex Matala's coming down. Ron Pierce, we got Christmas. So you get lots of breaks and stuff. But over the next uh, three or four months, I am going to try and work my way through the book of Romans. And uh, we'll see where that goes. But anyway, I'm looking forward to it. Today we're going to get through 18 verses. So see, I told you already, we're not going to take eight, eight uh, years to do this, all right? But let's pray, and, uh, and then we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this church. I love this church. Thank you for the music we just heard that just blessed us, and we, we really connected with your spirit during that worship time. And thank you for the many gifted people, Lord. This body, I was reading this morning my devotions just about how every member of the body is needed and how we were blessed by the music today. Uh, It was just powerful. It was just wonderful. And Lord, to sit here with a bunch of just regular human beings, Jesus, just to be loved by you and to love you back. That's what this Southland family is all about. And I thank you that I get to be here. I thank you that we get to preach your word here, and I thank you for your protection over this church. And I just pray you would bless us this morning as we look through the first 18 verses of Romans chapter 1. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to read the first uh, sentence of the book of Romans, and it's one of the, I'm just going to read it straight in my Bible. I just feel like doing that sometimes. I should have put a ruler in there first, but, or a bookmark, but um, it's the longest sentence I've ever run across in English literature, okay? And I was going to try and read it in one breath, but it's impossible, okay? But you're going to see everything I'm about to read to you is one sentence. Just watch. There's no periods. And uh, and if when I was in grade school, I would have gotten in trouble for a run-on sentence on this, but this is the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, okay? And he's going to pack a lot into his intro in the first seven verses, all right? So here we go. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be the saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sentence number one, okay? (laughs) And he packs a lot in there. Now, you can't blame him for packing a lot in there. The book of Romans, most, you know, all of Paul's letters except Romans, when Paul was writing, the book of Romans is a little different because uh, Paul had never actually been to Rome yet. 
okay? And so he's writing to a church. He, he doesn't actually know these people. He wants to come to them, and he is going to go to them at the end of his life, but he wants to come to them. He wants to preach to them, but he hasn't been with them yet. The rest of Paul's letters, very different. He's writing uh, to churches for the, who, the, for the most part where he started the churches, where he's been with these people. He's suffered with them. He's worked with them. He's rebuked them. He's loved them. He's built them up. Most of his letters are written to people he knows, but the, the letter to the Romans... He doesn't know, and so we'll forgive him for a long intro. There's a whole bunch more to the intro yet, but that was just the first sentence. And he packs a lot into this intro, right? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. It says under there, uh, underlined there, if we go back to verse 1, set apart for the gospel of God. And I wanted to stop there just for a moment. Again, just some introductory remarks. Um, the word gospel has sort of become like, um, like a, a magic word for a lot of Christians today, it's like, do you know the gospel? We preach the gospel. We talk about gospel, gospel, gospel. It's a spiritual word. It's sort of like hallelujah. We speak gospel, gospel, but we don't really know what gospel means. It's not a magic word. All it means is good news. Okay, that's it. The Greek word there, euangelion, uh, simply means good news. Paul says, I've been set apart as an apostle to tell everybody good news. That's what I'm telling everybody. Really good news about God. And then he breaks it down. And I'll just, I'll just quickly take you through it. And this is all in his first sentence of Romans, packed full of stuff. What is this good news? Paul is spending his whole life to spread the good news, the glad tidings of God. And he's just, he just throws down a few components. Uh, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. In other words, the gospel that Paul was preaching, the good news he was preaching, was all uh, foretold and prophesied in the Old Testament. Okay, so the New Testament is not divorced from the Old Testament. It was all foretold. It's a continuation of what the story in the Old Testament is continued in the New. The good news that Paul is preaching is just the good news that was foretold in the Old Testament, all right? And then it carries on, verse 3, concerning his son. So God has a son. Okay, so that's not new to us now, evangelical Christians 2,000 years later, but to, uh, you know, to new believers and people and Jews uh, in Paul's time, that was big news. God has a son. God has a son who is descended from David according to this flesh. And so this son was also a human, was also a man, was born into the line of David, just as was prophesied in the Old Testament. This is the Messiah. So the good news prophesied in the Old Testament concerning God's son, God has a son, and this son became a man, and he was in the line of David. This is all part of the good news, right? According to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God. So he was proven to be God, and declared to be God's son in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So this is not just a theory. It's not just a theory that Jesus is God, that this man, Jesus, is also God. It's not a theory. It was proven by God by the fact that this man raised from the dead. And that's the proof. That's an actual event in history. Jesus actually died 100% dead, and he actually raised from the dead. And this is a proof that he is God, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace. Through whom we have received grace. And we'll talk lots about grace throughout the course of this uh, series. But this is the good news that through God becoming man, named Jesus, 
and dying on the cross for our sins. Of course, Paul doesn't include the entire good news, every point uh, in this first sentence, but he just gives us a broad overview. But through this man, God, Jesus, we now can receive grace from God. And he says, I'm going to spend my whole life spreading these glad tidings. This is very good news. All right? Now, a couple things I want to say before we get going any further. First of all, I don't want to make the gospel. Remember that the word gospel just means good news. I don't want to make the word gospel. In fact, I don't want to do this with anything in the book of Romans. We do not want to make formulas. I'm, I'm really passionate about that, and I've been thinking about doing this series for a couple of weeks already. There is a way that the book of Romans gets taught, which I am not going to teach it in that way. And what I don't like is when the book of Romans gets taught as it's like a, it's this, this, it's like a, PhD dissertation, and everybody feels completely intimidated by it, and so common people don't even touch it. It's just for, like, students in seminary, and it's all about these formulas, and you have to memorize all these points, and if you don't know the points, you can't have confidence that you're actually any good at theology. You can't have any confidence that you actually know the gospel, and so people fight over what the gospel is. And uh, I, I remember reading a book a few years ago, and this guy was way too smart for his own good, and that often happens. And, uh, and he wrote this book, and in the book, he defines the gospel, the word gospel, which is just good news. He defines the gospel in terms of, I forget how many points, but he had his four or five points, that these four or five points are the gospel. He said many Christian uh, churches in North America are not preaching exactly these exact points in this way that I teach them. Therefore, most of the church is just, it's just false theology, false church. And I go, are you kidding me? And I know Christians that are intimidated, I don't know enough to share the gospel because I don't know the formula. Okay, well, let me tell you something right now. There are some basic points you need to know about the gospel that are really important. But it's not complicated. In fact, the vast majority of you here this morning absolutely know what they are. The basically, the good news, if there is no one, I mean, if you want to try and reduce the word gospel to six or seven exact points in the Bible, you won't be able to do it. I mean, for example, the first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So right there, the Gospels, the good news about Jesus, include a whole bunch more than just six or seven points or five points. Jesus coming back, that's in the book of Revelation, that's actually good news. Most people, when they make their formulas about the Gospel, they, they, they don't even include that, that Jesus is actually coming back someday to set up his kingdom. That's part of the good news. Basically, everything in the New Testament is part of the good news. So if you want to turn it into a formula, all you have to do is memorize Matthew through Revelation. Okay? So it's not a formula. The fact of the matter is, most of you here, 98% of you here, can have full confidence in sharing the gospel with people because you know the gospel. It's not a formula. It's good news. And basically, the main points you just got to know are Jesus is God. And Jesus became a man and he died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again, and he's coming back. And if you just have some kind of combination of those, and you tell people about Jesus, and you got to worship him, and you got to know him for forgiveness of sins, that's the gospel. It's not a formula, and it's actually not complicated. And the book of Romans, what I don't like when people teach the book of Romans is when they teach it in a way that actually glorifies themselves, where the teacher comes out looking smart. And I'm really hoping to come out of this series not looking any smarter, but maybe even looking a little dumber, and you guys all going, oh, duh. 
Because the book of Romans wasn't made to be a head thing only. Yes, it ministers to the head, but it's supposed to minister to our heart. And Paul's got it right in here. If we go to the next line there, Ken, why did he write this about, why is he giving his life for the gospel? Is it so that we can all become super, super smart and know all the theological formulas? No, he's preaching the gospel of God everywhere in order to what? To bring about the obedience of faith, to change lives. So we should come out of the book of Romans not feeling really smart and heady and theological, and now we can go around having theological debates and hitting people over the head and do you know this, or if you don't know that enough, or if you're not confident enough of that, you're not actually good enough to share the gospel with people. Really, you should come out of the book of Romans, and we should have, after, I hope after today's message already, a huge sense of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us, and also a passion, obedience of faith. The Christian walk is not, a, it's not Christian belief, it's a Christian life. It, the Christian doctrines are meant to be lived, not just known. Amen. And so the book of Romans should touch our hearts. It should cause us to love Jesus more. It should cause us to fear God more. And it should cause us to pursue him more, to bring about the obedience of faith. Christianity and the doctrines of, that we find in the book of Romans should not make us feel smarter. They should make us live differently. Well, let's keep going, and I'm just going to skip a couple of verses, and we'll go to verse 13, because he carries on a bit more with the introduction there. But in verse 13, he says this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And I just stopped there for just a moment, but it's interesting. I mean, Paul's heart, as you read the book of Romans and the rest of his letters as well, it should impact us a little bit because many of us don't feel any obligation to the kingdom of God. Many of us live lives where actually our whole lives, we call ourselves Christian, but our whole life is actually spent trying to make myself happy. I need to go on more vacations. I need to get more stuff. And you know, buying things and going on vacations is not bad. I go on them too, and I buy things. It's fine. But for many of us, our whole life is spent chasing entertainment, chasing comfort. Why would I do that? Why would I serve God in that? Because that would be uncomfortable. I don't have time for that. I need more relaxation time. Many of us are spending our lives on ourselves. And Paul shows us a totally different thing. He says, I'm a servant of God. I'm actually in this short life, he says, I'm going to have time to rest after I die, but this life I'm only going to live once. I'm living it for God. And I feel under obligation. I just want to spread the kingdom of God to the barbarians, to the foolish, to the wise, to the Greek, to the Jew, to everyone. He was under obligation. My whole life is lived for the kingdom. I pray that for myself, I pray that can spread in this church, that we would get a radically new mindset, that actually Christianity isn't about Jesus making my life better, it's about me giving my life to Jesus, that I live this lifetime for him, not for myself. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, and so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, so you had not been there yet. But now, this is an interesting thing, I want to stop you for just a moment. Why does Paul so desperately want to go to Rome to preach the gospel to Christians. He's writing this book to Christians. So why is he so desperate to go to Rome? Why is he willing to suffer and sacrifice? Why, why is he willing to go on this long and dangerous journey um, to go to Rome to these people who are already Christians to preach the gospel? See, the reason I ask this question is because most of us, when we think of that word gospel again, which we've made into this kind of magic word, 
we generally tend to think of preaching the gospel as something that we do only to people who have never heard the gospel. Isn't that true? So when we think of preaching the gospel, we think you got to go to Africa, you got to go to some country where they don't know, you got to go up north, you got to go places to preach the gospel to people who've never heard it because once people have heard the gospel, they don't need to hear it anymore, they already got saved, right? That's sort of how we feel. So why would Paul, I mean, go somewhere else, Paul, there's already Christians in Rome. So why wouldn't you go somewhere else to preach the gospel? Why do you want to go to Christians already, who are people who are Christians already, in order to preach the gospel? It doesn't make sense to us. Let's keep reading. We're going to find out, verse 16, why does he want to preach the gospel to people who are already Christians? Well, it says here, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I want you to notice something here in this verse, what Paul does not say. And this is really important. Why would Paul want to preach the gospel to people who are already Christians? It's right here in a sentence already. Notice that he does not say, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has believed. It doesn't say past tense. He doesn't say the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everybody who once prayed a prayer, and at one point in their past, they believed in Jesus, and that was enough to save them, and so that's the gospel saves you. If you, if you once believe, you're good. Somebody says. He says, the reason I want to come to you and preach the gospel to you is because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And the, the verb there is, is a present active verb. It, it means continuous believing, continues believing. So Paul says the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone, not just who once believed. See, we have a, a wrong uh, view that has become really ingrained in us. Or, or I don't know if it's totally wrong, it's maybe more just impartial, or, or partial truth, it's not complete. We have this view about salvation in the gospel that, that once I believe, once I pray and ask Jesus into my heart, then I'm saved. That's a one-time moment in the past. We ask people, when did you get saved? And we look to the past and we find an event where you ask Jesus in your heart and you say, that was the day you got saved. Now, first of all, again, it's not bad to remember the day you gave your life to Jesus. I remember very clearly mine. It's wonderful. That, what, a, what a great day to remember, the most important day in your life when you gave your life to Jesus, when you were born again. That is an important day to remember. I can still remember being five years old and uh, holding on to my little koala bear, being really afraid of hell, running to my parents, falling on the bed, and, and saying, oh God, I'm such a sinner, okay? And, uh, and giving my life to Jesus. I remember that day. I celebrate that day. But we have this idea that once I believe, once in the past, the gospel saved me. It already, it's already done. The gospel saved me in the past. And that's why when we think of preaching the gospel, we only think of preaching the gospel to people who haven't heard the gospel because people who have heard the gospel, why would they need to hear it again? Because the gospel already saved them because they believed once in the past somewhere. But Paul doesn't say that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to someone who believed once before. He says... The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who is believing, who continues to believe. There's this sense of the gospel continues to save us as we believe in it. And so one of the things you have to understand right at the very beginning here before we get into Romans, and this is very important as we read through the book of Romans and as we understand the book of Romans, is that in the New Testament, 
The New Testament talks about salvation differently than we North Americans tend to talk about it. It talks about salvation in three senses. We talk about salvation as something that happened to us in the past. I got saved. But the New Testament talks about salvation in three senses, senses, different senses. It talks about it in some cases as we have been saved. It talks about it in, other, in many other passages as we are being saved. And in other passages, it talks about we will be saved. Okay? And I know for some of you, this will be a real shock. Maybe you're new to this church. We've talked about this before here at Southland. But this is really important to understand a biblical view of salvation, that there is a sense in which we have been saved. There is a sense in which we are being saved. There is a sense in which it's not complete yet, and we will be saved. And it is so important to recognize this. But because of our Western mindset, we tend to, to, to read our preconceived notions into the Bible that rather than letting our, our notions be be. Uh, informed by the Bible. That's just a human reality. That's just how we, our human nature works. We just read what we assume in there rather than letting our assumptions be informed by what the Bible says. And so we just assume salvation is a thing in the past. Let me just show you a few verses to help you see this. 1 Corinthians 118 will just stay in the letters of Paul just so we can be consistent. And I'm going to show you how Paul viewed salvation. 1 Corinthians 118 for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to, those who, uh, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice again, Paul does not say to those of us who once got saved in the past, we once prayed a prayer, now we just live however we want the rest of our lives, but you've been saved. He says that the cross is again here, it's folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So again here in Romans, it's the power of God for salvation to those who continue believing. Here the cross is the power of God for salvation again to those who are being saved. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2. Now I would remind you, brothers, again this is Paul, of the gospel. So there's that word gospel again, which just means good news. It just includes everything about Jesus is good news. He's coming back. Grace comes from him. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again. All of that is really good news. There's no formula to it. Okay? Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the good news I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were saved 20 years ago. No. And by which you are being saved if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, I want to just... I want to just use Paul's analogy here for just a moment. Because, it's, again, it's very important that we understand salvation from a biblical perspective. Because otherwise, we don't even get Paul's motivation. Why would he want be so desperate to preach the gospel to people who are already saved? Obviously, there's a reason why he's so motivated. And the reason is because the gospel is the power of God for saving us as we hold on to it. That's his analogy. If you hold fast, you will be saved if you hold fast. So you prayed a prayer once and you just let go of it, at some point, he says, it's not saving you anymore. If you hold fast. So just, I just want to use Paul's analogy. Let's, let's think about, let me, let me illustrate for you this way, holding fast. Let's imagine, you know, you and a, and a friend are out in the ocean, and you're on a little uh, sailboat, and you get way out there, and a storm hits you, and you capsize, and so you're going to drown, okay? Except that, Fortunately, there's one of these, these big buoys. I imagine it as a big red buoy, you know, with one of those lights at the top, and it's for shipping lanes and stuff like that. And so your, your, your sailboat goes down right close to this buoy, and so, of course, the storm is raging all around you. You and your friend swim over to the buoy, and you kind of climb up a little ways, and you're hanging on, okay? 
Now, as long as you are hanging on to that buoy, you are being saved, are you not, from the ocean, okay? Now, what would you do if, you know, you've been hanging on to this buoy, let's say for a day, and you're waiting for the Coast Guard to come or whatever, right? So you've been hanging on to this buoy for a day, let's say, and the next day your, your friend tells you and just says, you know what, I'm so I'm just so thankful for this buoy and because it saved us. And so I'm done hanging on to this now. Thank you, buoy, for saving me. And you just let go and into the water and down and drown. And you go, the, the, the buoy didn't save you in the, in the past. Well, it did save you in the past, but if you want to be saved now, you've got to keep holding on to it. Isn't that true? And maybe your friend says to you, well, how long do I have to hold on to this buoy to be saved? Like, how long? And the answer is, you have to keep holding on to it until help comes. So there's also a future sense. So there is a past sense. The day we grabbed onto that buoy, we were saved. There's an ongoing sense that if I want to let go of this buoy, I'm not saved anymore. Is that true? And how long do I have to hold on to this buoy for? Well, I have to hold on to it until that beautiful red and white Coast Guard ship pops up and takes me home. I've got to hold on till then, right? So there's a sense in which I have been saved by this buoy, I am being saved by this buoy, and I will be saved in the future by the Coast Guard, hopefully, right? Before the sharks come. Or whatever. Okay? Now, in the same way, some of you, again, are, you're, you're gasping, you're in shock. In the same way, did Jesus not say, I am the vine and you are the branches? If a branch is not attached to the vine, does the branch continue living? Hey, I was attached to the vine 20 years ago. I prayed a prayer. I got attached to the vine. I haven't been attached to the vine now for five years, and I'm full of life. Praise be to Jesus. Thanks for praying that prayer. No. You take a branch off the vine, it's done. Jesus is life. He doesn't just save you once in the past when you pray a little prayer. You need him every single day. You need the good news of who Jesus is. You need his saving power. You need his forgiveness. You need his love every single day. You're in a storm of sin. We are in a storm of sin and death and hell and spiritual warfare until the day when he comes back. So to let go of Jesus and to say, hey, I prayed a prayer 20 years ago, to let go of Jesus is to embrace death. And so we continue day by day, vine and branches, we continue to hold on to Jesus until when? Until the day when he comes and he makes all things right. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. Now you can understand why would Paul have urgency? They already heard the gospel. They're already going to heaven. Go somewhere else. I'll tell you why Paul is so urgent to go to the Romans and preach the gospel. He, what he's saying is, I'm coming to your buoy to encourage you. Keep hanging on. I'm coming to your buoy to say, don't give up persevere. Even when you suffer, it's worth it. It'll all end up good in the end, but you've got to keep hanging on to Jesus. Amen. That doesn't end with some little prayer you prayed in the past, and now I can just live my life however worldly and selfish I want, and call that salvation that is not salvation. To be saved is to hang on to Jesus. Now, having said that, well, let's just throw in a few more verses just to make sure you know I'm not making this up. <laughs> Hebrews 10, 36. You need to persevere. Why would you need to persevere? I'm already saved. Why would I need to persevere? You need to persevere. This is the author of Hebrews saying, hold on to that buoy. You need to persevere. 
even when you suffer, even when you hurt, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. What has he promised us? Salvation, resurrection, heaven. How do we get that? By praying prayer once in the past and then just letting go and drifting in the ocean of sin and however we want? No. You need to persevere so that you can receive what he has promised. Matthew 10, 21 and 22, brother will, Jesus speaking of the end. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. This is, an, this is Jesus now exhorting us to hold on. It's going to get ugly and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Not the one who starts and then gives up and says, it's too hard, I don't like this life, I don't want to follow Jesus, I'm, I'm out. But the one who endures to the end. Jesus, is, this is an exhortation, keep holding on. Jesus says it again in Matthew 24 in a different instance. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Paul again, Colossians chapter 1. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And that's where a lot of Christians will just stop right there. Jesus is going to, is going to present me to God as holy and blameless before him. Amen. That's what he wants to do. Yes? We'll talk lots about that yet in the book of Romans. But amen, yes, the day is coming when Jesus wants to, wants to introduce you and bring you before the Father as holy and blameless before the Father. That's amazing considering the sins that we've committed. But I want you to notice that the sentence doesn't end there. Okay? He does not say holy and blameless and above reproach before him if you once prayed a prayer. No, no. If indeed you continue in the faith, if you continue to hold on, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. There's that word again that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So this is why Paul is motivated to preach the gospel even to Christians, and this is why we need to be continued to motivate, I'm, and why I'm motivated and why we as preachers need to be continued to be motivated to preach the gospel to those of us here, even though most of you have at some point given your lives to Jesus, and that is because it is an exhortation to continue hanging on to the good news that we continue to need Jesus. Now, having preached this point, we stop for a moment. Caveat. Some of you like caveats, some of you don't. Okay, I get to write my own messages. <laughs> so some of you I know, I preach a point like this, and you go into a spiral, an unhealthy spiral, where every day you constantly question your salvation. Am I going to hell? Am I going to hell? Am I going to hell? That's not what this point is about. The Bible uses different analogies for what salvation is. We need to never camp out just on one. We need to hold all of them in tension. So one analogy of scripture that Paul uses is holding fast. I like to think of it as holding fast to that buoy in a, in a raging ocean. The Bible also uses an analogy of a family. Okay, now many Christians camp out on family. They don't realize that the family analogy also is incomplete. You need all the analogies of salvation. You've got to hold them all in tension. Many people camp out on family, and that's why they don't think about holding fast. But there's an element of both. There's an element of we need to hold on to the gospel. There's also the, an element of the moment I give my life to Jesus, I'm his son, I'm, or you're his daughter. That I'm his child. And obviously with my kids, they don't get kicked out of the family just because they mess up. Isn't that true? At least not in my family, they don't. Okay, my, my kids are not perfect. Um, the parenting is perfect, but the kids aren't. And... Uh, <laughs> 
it's, yeah, yeah. Amen, the dawn, someone said, yeah. Um, so, you know, my kids do something wrong. I don't even think of kicking them out of the family. Obviously not. And I wouldn't want my kids getting up every morning thinking, am I in the family, am I not in the family, is dad kicking me out of the family? Obviously not. That would be unhealthy. But at the same time, we can't camp in this incomplete analogy and just say, I prayed a prayer once, I'm in. No, there's also this tension that the gospel is something I have to continue to hang on to, I have to continue to strive and pursue Jesus and push in. We have to hold them in intention. You say, how do we do that? Well, part of it is we just have to continue meditating on both. We need to meditate on passages of scriptures, not just the ones we like, but the ones we don't like. We need to take comfort from the family analogy. We need to take motivation from the keep hanging on analogy. It really is true that if you do not hang on, you will not make it. Hanging on and pushing into Jesus. So at the same time as we are sons and daughters of Jesus, at the same time, there needs to be evidence in my life that I've actually made Jesus Lord of my life. Isn't that true? I can't say I'm a son or daughter of Christ if my whole life is just obviously lived only for myself. There needs to be some evidence, and it'll look totally different in everybody, and we're all at different places. You know, one guy prays Jesus. It takes him five, six years just to, just to quit smoking or whatever, right? Well, praise Jesus. That's awesome. The next guy, you know, if he would start smoking, that would be a really bad sign. He's, di- he's at a different place on the road. It all looks different. But somewhere there needs to be some kind of evidence that even in our weakness, oh, we're all weak. We're all imperfect. We all mess up and we will until the day we're resurrected. And some of you are still caught in bondages. You're still on the way out. You're still in the midst of being delivered. You're not delivered yet. You don't have the strength yet to say no to things you wish you could say no to. That doesn't mean you're not saved. It's not being perfect that's the sign. But there needs to be some sign in your life that you actually are following Jesus. Because real faith, remember what we looked at earlier in this chapter, that Paul was writing the book of Romans to bring about the obedience of faith. Not to bring about head knowledge and going to church every week, but to bring about the obedience of faith. There needs to be some kind of evidence in your life that you actually are pursuing Jesus. And that is important. There's some kind of a desire in you to cling to him. One more verse before we get back to Romans. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved as you have always obeyed. There it is again. Not just, therefore, my beloved, as you have always believed. That's how we would write this letter here in North America now. My beloved, thank you. You've been believing proper doctrine now for many years. That's not what he says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. You've actually been living this thing. So now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, Should it always be fear? We're going to get to Romans 8 where Paul talks about the Spirit of God speaking into our spirits that he's our Father. We're going to talk about having confidence, having peace, not being afraid. But at the same time, we have to hold that intention with there is this idea in the Christian life that there needs to be a soberness as we evaluate ourselves. Am I actually pursuing Jesus? And we're not casual about that. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So let's go back to Romans now. Okay? So verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who is believing, who believes, present, continuing. A buoy doesn't save you just because you held on to it one day in the past. It saves you as you continue to hold on to it. The same is true of the gospel and of Jesus. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who continues to believe. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. 
Verse 17, four. Now he gives a second reason. So first of all, two reasons. Why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Number one, it's the power of God for saving everyone who keeps believing. So he wants to urge Christians and believers, keep holding on, keep pursuing. There's a second reason. Four, which is just another way of saying because in it, the blank, and it's not blank in the real Bible, as you no doubt uh, have guessed already, but of God is re- revealed from faith for faith as, as, is it, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So first of all, Paul says two, he's, he's given two reasons why he's not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, why he wants to preach it, why he wants to proclaim it. First one, as we said, is we need to be exhorted to continue believing. But there's a second reason, and it has to do with a character trait of God. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for in it the blank, and there's a character trait in there of God is revealed. And the reason I wanted to leave it blank is to highlight something of what it does not say. So if you were to think right now, which character trait of God are you not ashamed of? Which character trait of God is the Western church not ashamed of? Which is the one we would be most proud to proclaim? And most of us would put the word love into that blank. Isn't it true? We'd say, if we were Paul, it's like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in it, the love of God is revealed. Okay? Well, first of all, amen. And Paul does talk about this in Romans. Lots of the love of God. We're going to get to that yet. And it is true that the good news about Jesus shows us God's love. There's not even a question. That's not a bad answer. It's just, it's basically the only answer that most of us in North America would ever give, that if there was one character trait of God that we were not ashamed of, it would be the love of God, and it's not what Paul uses here. And the reason I wanted to emphasize it is because, as I'm going to show you in just a moment, the character trait that Paul says he is not ashamed of, the character trait he says is the thing that is motivating him to tell people the gospel is exactly a character trait that we are ashamed of here in North America today. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I want to preach this everywhere and sacrifice my life for it because it's the power of God for everyone who continues to believe it and hold on to it and because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from uh, faith, uh, for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So God is loving, yes. Paul talks about that elsewhere. The gospel does reveal the love of God. But the gospel does more than just reveal the love of God. It also reveals to us the righteousness of God. God is loving, but he is not just loving. He is also holy and pure and good. And until you get that, you'll never, you'll never experience the, pos- the, the power of the gospel. You'll never experience the urgency of the gospel if God is just loving, at least loving in the sense that that we paint love as a permissive love in Western culture. Actually, the gospel doesn't make sense. The whole gospel story makes no sense if God is just love. The fact of the matter is, the gospel only has power when you bring the love of God and the righteousness of God together. You have to have both. And this is exactly the trait, though, that many of us here in the West now are ashamed of. The fact that God would actually have standards. Our culture hates that. Tell me all about, our culture is totally fine. If all we preach is God loves you, God's encouraging you, God's your life coach, just keep doing what you're doing, and God just loves you because that's your identity, Don't tell me I'm doing wrong. This is what makes me happy. Don't tell me I'm doing wrong. We love each other. Don't tell me I'm doing wrong. This is part of who I am. 
Our culture hates to be told that there is right and wrong in terms of what we do and don't do. But the gospel only has power if we tell people there's right and wrong. Because the gospel actually, it, it, it reveals God's righteousness. Paul says here, I am not ashamed of the righteousness of God, and we as believers here in, in the West in the 21st century have got to lose our shame of the righteousness of God. Because until we get that part back, the gospel will continue to lack power. Now, this brings up several questions. First of all, how is the righteousness of God good news? Because Paul's calling this gospel, which is good news. On, on, on the surface of it, the love of God, that's good news. God loves me. He wants to pat me on the back. That's good news. God is holy and righteous and hates sin. That, doesn't, that sounds like bad news. How is that good news? Second of all, how does the story about Jesus show us God's righteousness? Again, most of us, when we think of Jesus, we think of the cross, we think of all these things, we think of how much God loves us, and we should. I'm not, I'm not preaching here this morning against the love of God. We need to experience more of the love of God. We need to receive more of the love of God. What I'm preaching against here is focusing only on this and not, and canceling out the righteousness of God. But how does the gospel story of Jesus show us the righteousness of God and why should we not be ashamed of it? Well, let's start with the question of how does the gospel story show us the righteousness of God? And I'll answer that question by asking another one. Have you ever thought about this? Why could God not just forgive us? You ever think about that? Like, why this whole part about Jesus coming and having to die? You ever thought about that? I don't know. Some of you maybe have, some of you maybe haven't. But let's just think about this for a moment. I have kids. My kids do wrong stuff all the time, and nobody dies as a result. My kids say sorry to me. Charlie loves saying sorry. He is so good at saying sorry. He's teaching our whole family how to be good at saying sorry. He says sorry to me all the time, and he'll say it, and he means it from the heart. Dad, I'm so sorry I did that. I don't even punish him after that. It's like, well, sometimes there might be discipline or, or consequence or whatever, but often it's just, I forgive you. And even if you don't have kids, don't we all do this? Your spouse does something and then says sorry. Don't you forgive your spouse? You don't, you don't punish her or him, do you? Some of you do. <laughs> Emotionally, that's bad. Come to learn to love and learn how not to do that, Okay. But your spouse does something wrong to you, they mess up, they come and say sorry, you just forgive them. Nobody has to die, nobody gets punished. Someone at work does something to you, a friend does something to you, they come and say sorry, you just forgive and forget, right? We, that's what we say, forgive and forget, nobody has to pay, nobody has to die. And so have you ever thought about, why can't God just do that? If we can just forgive and forget, why can't he just forgive and forget, right? Why can't he just, I mean, and that is the picture of God. When you only preach God as love, 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 love in this permissive loving sense, that's what many Christians have basically come to, is God will just pat us on the back and on the final day of judgment, Jesus and the Father will just say, we love you so much, and, I'm so, and you say, I'm sorry, and he just, and it's all okay, and it's no problem. But the fact of the matter is that God is not like us. God is not like us. God is righteous. He is righteous, holy, and pure. And we have no concept, we have absolutely no concept of how bad our sins really are. We have no concept of how bad our sins are. 
It's kind of like this. I was trying to think of an analogy. And really, there's just no way of doing this. But let's imagine a massive lake full of raw sewage. Okay, just bear with me for a moment, right? It's a massive lake of raw sewage. You can't see anything. Or maybe not a lake. A swamp is maybe a little better. So we can stand in there. We're not swimming. Um, so there's this massive, massive swamp of, of raw sewage as far as I can see. And we are all living in this swamp of sewage. We don't know any different. We're born into it. We're raised in it. We live in it. We interact with each other in it. So the fact of the matter is, because we're just in it all the time and we can't see anything else, we actually lose sight of the fact that we're covered in raw sewage. So I look at that guy over there. He's covered in raw sewage. I look at her over there, covered in raw sewage. I look at myself. I think I'm not that bad. I'm not hurting anyone. Isn't that true? Why is this so bad? I, we just love each other. I'm not hurting anyone. This isn't, this isn't bad. All I know is filth. This doesn't even look like filth to me anymore. As long as I'm not hurting anyone, I'm not doing anything bad. I'm basically a good person. That is how our culture views ourselves. There's no concept of sin anymore. But if we could even for one moment come into the presence of God, we would see that he is nothing like us. He is righteous. He is brilliantly white in purity. There has never been a lustful thought. There has never been unrighteous anger. There has never been unrighteous impatience. There's never been greed. There's never been any of these things. He is completely righteous, holy, and pure. If you could just one moment come into his presence in the throne room, you would say like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Because the moment you see someone who actually is holy and pure, you suddenly have a realization of how dirty we are. And until you have a realization that you're never going to know that you need the gospel or that you need to cling to anything. This is why a lot of Christians don't keep hanging on and this is why a lot of non-Christians don't ever want to grab on in the first place. We have no concept of what we need to be saved from. And until we understand that God is righteous and holy, it's like to ask God to just forgive and forget, which is kind of the way a lot of Christians are talking nowadays. He's just this permissive good guy in the sky that pats us on the back and wants to encourage us and would never want us to experience pain. Complete wrong concept of God. It's like having that cup of raw sewage. You have a cup of clear, beautiful, pure water. You have a cup of raw sewage. You just take an eyedropper of raw sewage. You plop it into this cup. And then you ask God to, to plug his nose and down it. Gross. You, you can't just drink it up and forget it's there. You actually have to clean it up. And the sin problem is so bad in us. It's this bad. The raw sewage analogy actually doesn't go far enough. If you want to know how bad the sin problem is, you have to look at how much it costs God to clean it up. When you look at the cross, you're not just seeing the love of God. You are seeing the love of God. I don't want you to not see the love of God there. You are seeing the love of God, but you're also seeing the righteousness. If God was just loving, he could have just said, forget it all. He wouldn't need to kill Jesus or let Jesus die. But you parents, imagine how much it would take for you to allow one of your kids to die for something. It would have to be pretty, pretty bad or important. And God let his only son die a horrible death on a cross. There's only one reason for that, and that's because the sin problem is that bad, and he's holy, he's got to clean it up, and the only thing that could clean it up is the blood of Jesus. That's the only way to clean it up. 
And when you realize that sin is that bad, you stop getting up in the morning and going, really, most of us Christians, we might say the right things theologically. We have absolutely no concept of our own wickedness and filth. And that's why we just get up and we don't cling to Jesus. We don't cling to the buoy as hard as we should because we don't have any concept of what we're being saved from. We're being saved from a whole lot of wicked, horrible, evil filth. And you say, I, st- I still don't get this good news. The good news is, I'll tell you a couple of reasons why this is good news. First of all, if God is just a permissive God who pats us on the back, we have no hope for the future because he's just going to keep patting us on the back forever and we're going to keep living in our shame and in our secrecy and in our lust and our greed and our pride and our self-centeredness. And I don't know about you, but I'm sick of my own self a lot of the time. I don't want to live like this for the rest of my life. I don't want to live with fear and lust and greed and pride and self-centeredness. That is gross. I don't want God to just pat me on the back and say, you're amazing, Chris. I'm not amazing. LaDon maybe thinks I am sometimes, but uh, (laughs) I hope. I'm not amazing. I've got all kinds of sin and junk. The fact that God is righteous is good news because it means someday I'm going to live for him forever in righteousness with him. I'm not going to have to live in filth anymore. He's going to clean me up. And the more the Holy Spirit opens my eyes to the filth that is in me and around me and on me, the more I'm glad for the righteousness of God that he is going to clean me up and I'm going to live cleaned up forever. That's good news. That is really good news. It's also good news because it means that Jesus paid for it all. He actually cleaned it up. He actually made a way. And the good news actually only really becomes good news when you see how bad the bad news is. There's a reason people aren't excited about the good news anymore because, and that includes us Christians, is because we don't know what we're being saved from. I love the, the analogy Tom used last week and uh, quoting Ray Comfort there of the, of the parachute on the plane and we're all going down. A lot of Christians just get sick they just, finally, it's like, I just want to live self-centered. I want to live in the world. I want to just fill my mind with entertainment and social media because it's just easier. And the only reason we go with easy is because we have no concept of what we're being saved from. When you realize that hell is the abyss that all of humanity is hurtling toward, there is no way a holy, righteous, and pure God is going to pat any sin on the back. So all of humanity is on this collision course with Judgment Day, and on the other side of Judgment Day is this abyss called eternal wrath in hell. And it's actually real because God is not permissive. He's holy. He is so holy, it just goes beyond anything we can even begin to comprehend or think. When you realize that, suddenly every day you cling to the gospel, thank you for saving me. Oh, I want to push deeper into you, Jesus. I have an urgency to pray, to pray for people who don't know you. I have an urgency to fast. I have an urgency to serve God. Why would I want to spend all my time with the TV and the social media? I'm being saved from hell. It changes everything. The good news becomes good news when you realize how bad the bad news is. When you realize how bad the storm out there is and that you're not going to make it in that storm very long, you hang on to that buoy with renewed strength. And so there's a third reason why we should not be ashamed of the righteousness of God, and that is because people need to be warned, right? 
people need to be warned. Let's look at what Paul says in the very next verse, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We're 18 verses into the book of Romans here, and Paul hasn't been talking about the love of God yet. He's going to get there. Trust me, the love of God is awesome. But I just want you to notice something, because this just goes totally against the way we in North America preach about God and preach the gospel. We preach love, 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 love. That's the only character trait of God we're not ashamed of. Everything else we're ashamed of. We're 18 verses into the book of Romans, and Paul so far has talked about the righteousness of God and the wrath of God. We're going to get to the love, and love is not less important than those. I'm not trying to link, put, put love underneath those. It certainly isn't. Love is God's trait, and God is love. But this is what I want to say. I want to just give a warning, because we don't realize often how swayed and impacted we are by the culture instead of the Bible. And I want to encourage you something, because I often have conversations with people And our culture, and our Christian culture, pushes very hard on the love of God's side, which is hugely important. We're doing learn to love very shortly. I love love. Really love love. And I love God's love. I'm not against love. But our culture pushes hard, hard, hard. Love, 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 love. But it's a permissive kind of love. It's a wrong kind of love. And so everybody's talking about the love of the Father, love of the Father, love of the Father. We actually need to ground ourselves repeatedly in the Bible So we constantly get the full picture of God. Because I hear people again and again and again, but you read the popular authors and you listen to the popular preachers on TV and you go to the popular uh, conferences and they preach love, love, love. Very few are preaching wrath. But open up your Bibles and what does the Bible say? We have to let God's word describe for us who God is, not just people. We need to be grounded in this. So yes, read other books. Listen to other preachers. That's all fine. I certainly don't have it all together. But for all of us, we need to be in this lots and lots and lots and lots because lots of us have no concept of the righteousness of God or the wrath of God. That's what Paul's talking about here. And we need that. Holy Spirit-inspired stuff. And it's the righteousness and wrath of God that gave Paul a sense of urgency. He's like, I'll sacrifice my life. I want to preach the gospel to everybody, but I don't even just want to preach it to non-Christians. I want to preach it to you Christians in Rome. I have a sense of urgency because in it, the, the righteousness of God is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed against sin. And it's only when you begin to understand the wrath of God that you get the urgency. It's, it's, it's like this. Let me finish with an illustration. Imagine, you know, you're, you're standing outside. There's this big building over there. And uh, someone comes up to you and says, um, There's a bunch of people in that building and we need to get them all out. So go in there and get them all out. Well, why should I get them all out? Well, if you get them all out to the grass here, they're they're called saved. Okay, so that's my motivation to go in there and yell and tell everybody get out of the building is just so that they can enter a group called saved. Yes. I'm not going to be too motivated to go into that building. They're going to laugh at me. It's going to cost me energy all just so I can get them out of that building and have them come and stand on the grass here and be part of a group called the saved group. I don't have motivation. Okay? But now imagine this person comes and he gives you a little more backstory and he says, there is a gas leak in the basement of that big building. A small fire has already started. At some point in the next 15 or 20 minutes, the whole building is going to blow. It's going to crumble down and all those people are going to die a horrible burning death. We need to get those people out of the building. It's not just so that they can be called saved. It's so that they can be saved from something. Now suddenly, 
I have motivation. I'm okay with being ridiculed. I'm okay with risking my life. I'm okay with being uncomfortable. I'm okay with, with, you know, not just sitting back and enjoying the sun in the park. I'm okay with making some sacrifices because those people, there's an urgency. They need to be saved from something. They don't just need to be called saved. They need to be saved, and we need to be saved. And it's only when we get the concept of the holiness and the righteousness of God and that he is wrathful against sin and he will not pat it on the back and that we desperately need Jesus because only Jesus' blood and only making him Lord of my life is what will have my sins forgiven so I don't have to go to hell and spend eternity under wrath. Suddenly I'm motivated to make sacrifices in my life, to follow God with all I have, to love Jesus, to make him Lord of my life, and to pray for people who don't know him. Amen? Why don't we all close our eyes? I want you to bow your heads with me. I want to say two different prayers. Some of you in here today have never actually given your life to Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. I don't want you to leave here today thinking, wow, I think I need Jesus. I don't know how to do it. Well, you can, it's that easy. You don't have to work anything up. That's the beauty. And we're going to go through that in the book of Romans too, how Jesus saves us. But it's a free gift if you'll throw yourself at his feet for mercy. And so I'm just going to pray a prayer. I'm going to ask all of you to just follow me in this prayer, even those of you who have been believers for a long time. It's okay. We'll just do it all together so nobody feels out of place. But if there's even one person in here this morning or in the second service that will ask Jesus to be their Lord and Savior, it's worth it. And so if, if I just want everybody to say this prayer aloud with me, and if you really mean this in your heart and you've never given your life to Jesus before, then as of today, you have begun the journey of being saved. You're hanging on to the buoy. You're out of the storm. Lord Jesus, I want to confess today that I am sinful and in need of saving. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Amen. I want to pray another prayer. This one you don't have to say out loud, but... You can pray with me in your heart. This is for all those of you who are already believers. And I want to pray and ask God's forgiveness for complacency. That we have been very casual about hanging on to the gospel. We've been very casual about clinging to Christ. Lord Jesus, we just want to confess complacency. We want to confess getting our picture of who you are from popular authors instead of from your word. We want to confess being ashamed of your righteousness and your holiness in a culture that doesn't want you to be righteous or holy. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us a spirit of zeal to seek you, to hold on to you, to make you Lord of our lives, that we at this church will be characterized by a burning sense of urgency. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.